Welcome to the Plymouth Meeting Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in. We hope the following message touches your hearts and minds. This is Psalm 112. Praise the Lord. Blessed are those who fear the Lord, who find great delight in his commands. Their children will be mighty in the land. The generation of the upright will be blessed. Wealth and riches are in their house, and their righteousness endures forever. Even in darkness, light dawns for the upright, for those who are gracious and compassionate and righteous. Goodwill will come to those who are generous and lend freely, who conduct their affairs with justice. Surely the righteous will never be shaken. They will be remembered forever. They will have no fear of bad news. Their hearts are steadfast, trusting in the Lord. Their hearts are secure. They will have no fear. In the end, they will look in triumph on their foes. They have freely scattered their gifts to the poor. Their righteousness endures forever. Their horn will be lifted high in honor. The wicked will see and be vexed. They will gnash their teeth and waste away. The longings of the wicked will come to nothing. Okay, let's get started for today. Over 235 years ago, in 1785, Jacob and Catherine Albright, they got married and they established their home near Ephrata, uh, Pennsylvania. That's in Lancaster County, Pennsylvania. Some of you might know where that's at. Jacob and Catherine, religiously, uh, this couple, they, they were affiliated with a nearby Lutheran church. Now, sadly, in 1790, several of the Albright's children, they passed away due to dysentery. It's a, it's a sad story. However, at the funeral services, Jacob was deeply moved by the officiant's gospel-centered message. And this eventually led to Jacob having a real encounter with Jesus. Jacob surrendered his life to Jesus, Savior and Lord. And from there, Jacob, he, he started his journey of Christian growth. He faithfully studied God's word and he developed a prayer life. And just a few years after that, in October of 1796, Jacob Albright, he, he answered God's call upon his life to be a preacher. Now, this is 1796, okay, 1796. Back then, okay, like, Jacob, Jacob spoke German, all right? Sometimes we forget uh, that there was a lot of German-speaking Americans, uh, specifically in our area, um, other languages as well. Jacob spoke German, and this is important to, to the context, to the story. He has this calling upon his life to be a preacher. But you know what? What he was seeing is that a lot of people, uh, a lot of uh, evangelists, a lot of preachers, a lot of ministers, they were catering to the English speakers. And so Jacob, he had a heart to reach his German-speaking neighbors. 
to reach German-speaking Pennsylvanians and Americans. And so he started going out and he would preach in people's homes. By the year 1800, he formed three classes, what we would kind of consider like a small group today, a cell group, a small group. In each class, there was about 20 or so believers, 20 or so people. And uh, by 1803, okay, there was five classes with about 40 people in each class. All right. Whatever Jacob was doing, there, there seemed to be some accumulation there. Men and women, entire families came to know Jesus in a very personal way. And eventually these Christians who were associated with Jacob Albright, they, they, they grew, these small groups formed, and it got bigger and bigger. Eventually they organized and they became known as the Evangelical Association. And I will say that is a predecessor to our denomination, the Evangelical Congregational Church. Now, there's so much more to say about Jacob Albright and many more stories to share and, and uh, many more stories to highlight about these early days of the Evangelical Association. But what I want to point out is, is this. The, the Evangelical Missional Impulse, okay, that, that, that impulse was, was so vibrant in Jacob's life. Again, Jacob, he had a heart to reach his German-speaking neighbors. He saw a lot of people associated with, with church, but Jacob realized that church cannot save you. Church cannot save you. Like, that's great if your name is on a membership role, but Jacob's like, church doesn't save you. Jesus Jesus saves you. Jesus saves and so he had a passion for the loss. He, he saw so many Americans trapped in cold, dead religion. He, he, he was just like, man, dead religion is hopeless. Okay. And some people who identified as Christian, they saw Jacob and they, they didn't like him. There's a story. Uh, there, there's a village in Pennsylvania. He was riding through or walking through and uh, Lutherans and some uh, German Reformed Congregants came out. They, they started throwing stones at Jacob. Okay? He preaches the gospel. People get saved. And then, and then they, they end up leaving their, their, their church and, and find like a gospel church. And so uh, people didn't like this. They were throwing stones at, at, at Jacob. And, you know, in a way, we could kind of argue that the religious environment of Jacob's day it's not too much different from today, you know, our, our time. We don't throw physical stones, but I'm sure you see it on social media, etc. Like, we're still throwing stones at each other. But I tell you all this, one, uh, it's because Jacob's a part of our heritage. We look to Jacob Albright. He's like our founder or one of our founders of our evangelical congregational church. But two, you know, Jacob, he, he took on this bear. He, he took on this, this reality of hopeless religion. This, this, this religion of, of meaningless routines that he saw so many people just get caught up into. 
You go to church, you sit, somebody speaks to you, you do the thing, and then and then see you next week. Okay? Just a routine. A routine. I think we're going to be challenged today. In today's message. I was challenged as I was prepping for this and and uh, we're going to be reminded that all of us are capable capable of falling into patterns and routines that that don't really lead us to the good life. Things that that kind of end up draining us in a way. Sometimes the things that we do, you know, that you know, let's just keep it in the framework of of like religion and faith, Christianity. Sometimes the things that we do become mechanical, repetitive. Here's the thing, coming alive in, in Jesus and walking with him is a journey of deep discovery and transformation. You know, Christi- Christianity is a lifestyle. God invites you into a relationship with him. The, the relational aspect of our faith is so important. A core tenet of our faith is that you're not invited into a formality In Christ, by the power of the Holy Spirit, you are invited into the life of God. To participate in the mission of God. The glory of God. In a world that is filled with so much devastating brokenness, you are invited into a life of delight. A life of delight is a life in the light. Last week, if you were able to catch our, our message, we, we talked about Jesus being the light. And so we, we continue that train of thought today. Jesus is the light. We are in the light. Let us be in the light. And so as we try to cultivate evangelical, that evangelical missional impulse that is such a big part of our, our heritage, you know, let me encourage you, church, to stay on mission. To stay in the light and to let your light shine before others. Today our our scripture uh, message, our our lesson today comes from Isaiah 58. And uh, we are learning from Israel today. And so please turn to Isaiah 58 if you have your Bibles today. I will put the, the words on the screen for you, uh, but if you like that Bible on your lap, go ahead, crack that open, Isaiah 58. Uh, we'll get started today here in Isaiah 58. In our text, we find this post-exile Israel. But here's the thing, they aren't living vibrantly in the life of God. Specifically, religious things like Sabbath and fasting, they've become religious formality. Much of Israel is just caught up into this this rigid religion, this this stuffy religion. So in Isaiah 58, God is is addressing this. God is going to speak into this. He's speaking to Isaiah through Isaiah. Let's start at verse 1. God tells Isaiah, Cry out loudly, don't hold back. Raise your voice like a ram's horn. Tell my people their transgression and the house of Jacob their sins. Isaiah, use your outdoor voice with a full throat. 
Tell the people. Make sure the people hear you. Tell them that they are eyeball deep in sin. Tell them how, how wounded they are in, in moral disease. God sees everything. God sees his people. And what he's seen is they look pious and, and devout on the outside. Let's read. They seek me day after day and delight to know my ways. Like a nation that does what is right and does not abandon the justice of their God. They ask me for righteous judgments. They delight in the nearness of God. We have fasted, but you have not seen. We have denied ourselves, but you haven't noticed. You see, God's people here, they, they try to put on a fast. But it doesn't seem like God is, is noticing them. And they're like, we're denying ourselves, God. But like, you're not noticing us. Look how hungry we are. God, where are you? Now, let's just pause for a second. Let me ask you. Have you ever done a, a churchy thing where in the end it was like, yeah, that was superficial? We'll just take that, that mini break, ask that question, think about that. Have you ever done something with Christianity, something with the church? And it was like, yeah, that was just routine. Back to Israel. Okay, so, so God sees this. He sees Israel and he responds to Israel. And uh, yeah, they're, they're fasting. This religious task, religious, uh, this spiritual discipline, it was superficial. It was a show. It was just cold, dead, ancient Hebrew religion. Look, you do as you please on the day of your fast and oppress all your workers. You fast with contention and strife. You strike viciously with your fist. You cannot fast as you do today, hoping to make your voice heard on high. Will the fast I choose be like this? A day for a person to deny himself, to bow his head like a reed, and to spread out sackcloth and ashes. Will you call this a fast and a day acceptable to the Lord? God's people are just going through emotions, but instead of stopping and humbling themselves to do a true fast, fasting and prayer, slowing down, instead of, and instead of just stopping all of that and focusing on the, the spiritual discipline, they go ahead and, and they do what they desire. Instead of stopping all work, they, they make their hired servants to keep working for them. And that's not cool. And as we, as we read there, uh, this fast, it actually causes contention and strife. Naturally, when you fast, you will get hungry. If you fast from food, uh, you'll get hungry. You'll, you'll get irritable, ill-tempered. And one of the purposes of, of fasting is that in your emptying, you draw close to God. And he fills you up with his Holy Spirit. Now, also, putting on burlap 
throwing ashes around and, and, uh, and pretending that you're repentant. That's not what God is looking for. So what kind of fast is God looking for? He tells us in verse 6, Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, to tear off every yoke. Isn't this the fast I choose? To break the chains of wickedness, to untie the ropes of the yoke, to set the oppressed free, and to tear off every yoke. Instead of this heartless, cold, dead, religious work, God wants our hearts and minds to be seeking after his. God's like, how about fasting and, and, and praying to seek the chains of the wickedness, you know, break off. Chains of, chains of wickedness just shattering and breaking off. How about fasting and, and, and praying to see the ropes of the oppressed untied? What if fasting and praying was done so that we could see people's burdens just, just torn off? Burdens that, that hunger, that, that press down on people. What if that could just get off and people could be free? Like these, these are the things that God is, is pointing us to. God has an emphasis on social justice. And yes, these days we need to nuance what social justice is. Uh, in our context today, when I say social justice, I'm talking about social justice being the the practical side of gospel proclamation. Social justice today, for us, it's the application of the gospel. We proclaim the gospel, but we are also practitioners of the gospel. Practitioners of compassion. Practitioners of, of taking care of orphans and, and widows. Okay? So here's the challenge for us today. In the broad and diverse group that goes by the name evangelical, as evangelicals, we are to hold up healthy, transformative, inspirational worship. We are to hold up good biblical teaching, good doctrines. We are to hold up practical compassion for the poor, the helpless, the oppressed. We are proclaimers and and practitioners at the same time. Historically, I'm reminded of John Wesley, another figure that our, our tradition uh, draws uh, some, some flavors from. John Wesley, in the 1700s, he would often carry a medicine bag with him. And as he would preach revival services, he would also Give people some, some home remedies, some, some medicine, a practical way to meet needs, a preacher with practical remedies. Back to Isaiah, verse 7. Is it not to share your bread with the hungry, to bring the poor and homeless into your house, to clothe the naked when you see him, and not ignore your own flesh and blood? God is saying to us, feed the hungry, shelter the homeless, clothe the naked. Take care of your family. Take care of your, of, of your own flesh and blood, your relatives. 
As individuals, we get to do this on our own. If you see an opportunity to do good, take it. On the corporate side of things, on the, on the community side of things, as a church, we are, we are better together. Okay, We are stronger together. For example, like when, when we do uh, our little uh, canned food drives, you know, they're, they're not little after all. Okay, when we do our canned food drives here at Plymouth Meeting Church, our pantry grows little by little and it ends up being a lot. Because it's a bunch of people. We're all participating. A few cans at a time, but the pantry grows. We are better together. Let's check out verse 8. Then your light will appear like the dawn, and your recovery will Come quickly, your righteousness will go before you, and the Lord's glory will be your rear guard. At that time, when you call, the Lord will answer. When you cry out, he will say, here I am. God is stretching us in our disciplines here, our spiritual disciplines. In this case, in Isaiah's case, Isaiah 58, this is fasting. But, but, you know, in general, when you practice a spiritual discipline like fasting, you typically get the benefits from it. So like, like fasting, uh, you might lose weight, uh, but certainly there's spiritual benefits, okay? But here's the thing. God is stretching us that, okay, it's, it's not just about you. Like, when you do these, these disciplines... God is stretching us where it's not just us who gets the benefit, but but others around us. God is stretching us here. Fasting and self-denial, it means being oriented towards the other. Being oriented towards helping others. God challenges us to go beyond ourselves. My study Bible, uh, one of the footnotes reads this. God wants our service to go beyond our own personal growth to acts of kindness, charity, justice, and generosity. True fasting is more than what we don't eat. It is pleasing God by applying his word to our society. That's, that's stretch. That is, that is a stretching movement there. Let me just read that. Last part again. True fasting is more than what we don't eat. It is pleasing God by applying his word to our society. Powerful, challenging stuff there. Again, in our spiritual disciplines like fasting, these these aren't legalistic demands, okay? They are invitations into the life of God, the life of delight. The good news is, in Christ, we get to go to God the Father for empowerment and delight. That, that say, if you're going to fast, like, you get to approach that spiritual discipline, and it's like, hey, 
God, I'm fasting. I'm going to be emptying myself out. You're going to be filling me up. But it's not out of formality. It, it is to connect with you, God. I want to join in with the life of, of who you are and be in relationship even more so. Like, I, I want to go deeper as deep calls out to deep. God, I, I want you. I want to be in the life of God. I want to, I want to be in the life of delight. I want to be in the light. That's what, that's what it is about. It is that empowerment and, and, uh, we, we use our, our spiritual disciplines, fasting, maybe it's Sabbath day, maybe it's prayer and reading, maybe it's journaling and, and, and so on and, and so on. You get to ask God, the Holy Spirit, to, to breathe life into your endeavors. And as you journey in your Christian growth, as, as you faithfully study God's word, as you develop your prayer life, as you practice spiritual disciplines, perhaps like fasting, it's not just for you, but it's for the world. God's light for you, uh, the, the light that he is shining on you and in you and through you, the light of Christ in you, God's light in you is not to be contained in a container. Okay, don't put the basket over the light. Light is meant to shine, and God wants us to shine bright. And so, dear son and daughter of God, shine bright. Shine bright and bring that good news. Shine bright and, and, and do those good works. Now, let me just close with the words of our Savior. Jesus reminds us in Matthew chapter 5, Church, you are the light of the world. A city on the hill cannot be hidden. No one lights a lamp and puts it under a basket, but rather on a lampstand. And it gives light for all who are in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works. And give glory to your Father in heaven. The challenge is to say no to cold dead religion and say yes to a vibrant life in God to say yes to the light to, to go deeper in it let your light shine before others let your light shine before others <laughs>